it became evident that we were filling a commercial need that, you know, if not being filled, could have been a catastrophe. Being ready when that opportunity presents itself. There's a lot of legwork that went into it in terms of, you know, evaluating the markets and, you know, knowing when folks said they wanted a new product, you know, how to interpret their needs into a futures contract. It's a lot of art and a lot of science, but it can't be done unless you're getting input from a broad community. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Days of Futures Past on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. We have two guests with us today from Abex Exchange and Clearinghouse in Singapore. They are Dan McElduff, President, Head of Strategy and Development, and Joe Rea, the Chief Commercial Officer. We'll be discussing the launch of Clearport at the NYMEX in 2002, which brought the backing of the Clearinghouse to the global OTC markets and today clears transactions from 1,800 listed contracts across multiple asset classes. Hello, Dan and Joe. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hey, David. We get to talk with each other quite a bit as colleagues, but I was really looking forward today to getting to talk with the two of you about experiences you had long before I met either of you. And that's because before the two of you teamed up to launch the ABEX Exchange and Clearinghouse in Singapore, you worked together to launch Clearport at the NYMEX in 2002. And just to give our listeners a little context, Joe, I was hoping you could start us off today by telling us what Clearport is and what commercial need was it meeting in the market at the time? Well, thanks, David. Thanks for having us. The Clearport name really didn't come around or be added to the platform, the clearing platform, to probably a year or so after we actually launched the uh, the clearing system. I think we in the beginning, we called it OTC clearing for lack of any other word. And we ended up sitting in uh, Bo Collins' office, who was the president of the NYMEX at the time, Dan, myself, and Nakama, who was our uh, our marketing head, to come up with a, with a name for it. And, and me being the nautical person in the room came up with the, with the lighthouse logo and the and the clear port and you know it was i guess that and that was for lack of anything else or any other other suggestion that's what really stuck and uh you know there's some always great anecdotes around it but uh you know we ended up using a little light lighthouse logo for a couple of years with the first FIA Boca after we launched it and came up with the name, which was probably the third year of Clearport, we actually contracted with a, a marketing company in Boca Raton, Florida to build a lighthouse to put it on next to our stand at the at the FIA. We spent a lot of money on it and it basically looked like a cone head and we put it in the back of the closet and never used it for the conference. So you know, those are some, some of the, the funny things about it. But in all seriousness, Clearport was you know such a an important clearing and risk management tool for the industry that was really suffering as a result of the default of Enron and the lack of the ability to trade with each other bilaterally, which is how the market had existed primarily in in off exchange trades that weren't you know on the NYMEX or any other platform or any other futures exchange. So natural gas contracts, electricity contracts, 
those those contracts didn't exist from a basis perspective. The benchmark Henry Hub was there and the uh, WTI, but those were literally the only benchmarks around. And all the basis contracts had formed in the OTC market, primarily as Enron as the buyer and seller to either, either side of the marketplace. And so when Enron defaulted, that buyer or seller or risk taker exited the marketplace and all these merchant energy firms, utilities, natural gas companies, all were left not being able to transact with each other because of, uh, of the risk that was in the marketplace. And we often think of, you know, over-the-counter or OTC trades, and then we think of trades that occur on exchange. And I think people often think about the exchange, but they don't think about the clearinghouse, particularly if you're not involved in the nuts and bolts and the plumbing of the financial markets. So, Dan, can you give our listeners just a, a brief background in what is the importance of the clearinghouse and in the case of allowing clearing services for over-the-counter trades, why have it operate independently of the exchange? Oh, yeah. Happy to, David. And thanks thanks for, for having us on this, this discussion. It's a long time coming. And to add on to a bit of Joe's history of, of the term Clearport, I think it was in that meeting, I was kind of opposed to the idea because there were mechanics to it that I wanted people to understand better as opposed to throwing a, a marketing term at it. But it turned out to be perfect because it really was that simple, right? We wanted to open the clearinghouse to the OTC market and, and resolve some of the issues that the market was facing. It was it was clear there was a commercial need for it, and it was solving a problem in terms of where we might enter the market. After years of evaluating what we could do beyond the traditional role of an exchange and clearinghouse, so the the clearinghouse, you know, the exchange brings people together. The clearinghouse supports what we call efficient price discovery by putting everybody on the same level. And you know, when a commodity is bought or sold, its price may reflect, it may be impacted by a number of things, whether it be grade, quality, and different um, fundamentals in different regions. Those are all addressed by standardizing products. But to get everybody, you know, a really big thing um, that became evident in that time around Enron and throughout the history of the market is that it could be a buyer or seller is not particularly creditworthy and needs, and, and the price is going to reflect that because the, the, the party on the other side can't take that risk. They have to extract the premium somehow. And that kind of distorts the price discovery process because, you know, a good traded between two creditworthy counterparts and a good traded at the same time between one, you know, two counterparts, one of whom is not creditworthy, could have a very different price. So the clearinghouse creates that level playing field, creates uh, an environment where um, the price discovery process can get to fair value, much like in the interest rate market, where if the U.S. Treasury market is the, the risk-free rate for interest, then any place where there's a clearinghouse operating and counterparty creditworthiness is not a concern, then you can have faith that what you're buying or selling is at a fair price. And Dan, you've been talking about how the clearinghouse puts even OTC trades participants on the same level in terms of credit risk, because the clearinghouse operates as, you know, I guess the buyer for every seller and seller for every buyer. So you're facing the credit risk of the clearinghouse, not the credit risk of your counterparty. Are there other risks that the clearinghouse also helps to mitigate? It does. And key to that is, is delivery risk, right? There's parties who, who may or may not be interested in, well, who may be interested in the market, but may or may not be able to deliver a specific grade or a specific quality or at a specific location, right? But they're very interested in participating in the market. And if you create a clearinghouse and a standard product where parties can come in 
and if they choose to be so anonymously, they can, you know, buy or sell a good with not just a chosen counterparty, but they, they have access to an entire, you know, whoever has access to that system. And access to that system is simply opening up a futures account. And if they're, instead of a bilateral deal where you have, you know, may have a handful of counterparts, now all of a sudden you're potentially exposed to dozens of counterparts and you can manage that, that risk you'd rather not have, including delivery. So there may, there are participants in the market who bring a great deal of liquidity that have no interest in going to delivery. They're market makers or they're, they're hedge funds that want to have exposure in certain commodity markets. And now they have the ability to do that because they also have the ability to go back to other counterparties and cover their positions before they mature into a delivery obligation. And that creates this, this opportunity to expand on the community that, that's trading in a particular commodity. It increases liquidity and the community grows more and more uh, along with liquidity. You know, With diversity, you just have market conditions improving for everybody. And another element of, of delivery risk, and, and we often use the term a market of last resort, parties will always want specifics of you know their own business particulars met when they're buying or selling a physical good. But if they, if they have a market of last resort, they can go to where they can be, at, least meet, at least meet some of their terms and address their delivery risk, then that creates a form for liquidity that's not going to happen uh, outside of an environment like a clearinghouse. And Joe, I wanted to follow up with you on a point that Dan raised, because in my my financial markets 101 mind, too simplistically, I often think of OTC contracts as being more customized and bespoke, and the -the over-the-counter markets are where those types of transactions occur, with exchange-traded contracts being standardized. But Clearport would require standardized contracts for clearing, correct? And then how did you go about introducing those new contracts? That's correct. And, you know, that was the argument from the beginning that we got from the majority of the marketplace um, that didn't uh, that didn't come on board with Clearport in the beginning because they said, well, you can't take OTC contracts that are so customized and bespoke and make them or turn them into futures contracts that 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 are cleared and, and you know, there's no counterparty risk. And what we did through you know, Dan's team and the research team at the NYMEX was to really engage with the marketplace to find the common terms of products that they were trading. And initially, it was 15 natural gas contracts, basically, that were the most liquid OTC contracts in the net gas, the U.S. net gas basis markets that were affected by the default of Enron. And we started with that. And we said, okay, how do we take those OTC bespoke contracts and and find the commonality between those and the the rules-based program at the NYMEX and, and, and the clearinghouse and how do we mitigate that risk and how do we turn them into futures contracts that, that mitigate that risk between counterparties. And, and it wasn't, I wouldn't say it wasn't easy. It was generally, there was a lot more common, I think, themes than we thought. And that led to developing more products but as we became more and more known in the marketplace, particularly through the broker community, which was a big supporter of what we were doing because they did sit on a lot of the liquidity that was in the OTC markets and we were just helping them renew their businesses. And so they kept bringing to us additional products that that were you know, not being looked at in the, in the clearing marketplace to, for us to list. And we were able to basically replicate the model for net gas into power, into oil products, into freight, into weather, into many, many asset classes, that as long as you have that connectivity or control to your own clearinghouse and you do the due diligence on the products and you have the marketplace behind you, those pools of liquidity 
can then be, be brought in onto the exchange and then cleared, which obviously helps the, the, the counterparty risk situation. So from a little more than a dozen natural gas contracts in the beginning, I think CME, who now owns Clearport, has about 1,800 listed contracts yeah. on there today. When I, when I left there in 2011, uh, it, was almost, it was almost 2,000. They delisted some that just became um, somewhat obsolete. But right, yeah, we listed almost 2,000 individual contracts across multiple asset classes, even in metals markets. And all of that was a result of interaction with, with the marketplace that we feel we're, uh, we're bringing here to ABEX and where the, the current exchanges just, whether they don't have the attention span or the internal ability to do it from a, from a talent perspective, but we do feel that we have um, you know, the right people with the right connectivity to the marketplace to bring what we did back then to what we're doing here now. And back then, Dan, I mean, you were a senior director in research at NYMEX well before the launch at Clearport. So I'm curious, you might have some perspective of where did the idea for Clearport come from and, and how did it develop over time before it actually launched? Yeah, Joe made the comment about, you know, we, what we had been calling OTC Clearing became Clearport. And OTC Clearing was something that really became evident because of the credit crisis in, in the early aughts amongst the merchant energy companies. But we were able to build on some, some efforts in the 90s um, that NYMEX was involved in. There was, you know, after having success in Henry Hub markets, there was thoughts that we might be able to offer services in the physical market. And bulletin board type system was, was built. It was called Channel 4. It had the, the logo CH4, like the, the chemical composition of methane. And um, there was a lot of efforts like that underway, very few which, which took hold, but it started the processes of us defining what trades in, in the OTC. And over time, things kind of evolved where there was the, swap, the OTC swap market, uh, particularly natural gas had developed, and it offered so much in terms of depth and breadth of product that we were tracking that for many years. But we recognized that the opportunity really came about in the context of what we did with clearing, just, you know, through the evolution of our thinking on it. And after spending a lot of money on things like Channel 4, another one was called E-NYMEX. And um, the E-NYMEX thing was like during the dot-com era. And we realized the, the, the matching mechanism was something that was already addressed by other OTC electronic venues and or the voice brokerage community in particular. Um, which remains a, an important and robust part of the market today. We had the opportunity to seize on that. And, you know, we had, I, I had been working on these products for quite some time. It all kind of came together in that context in the early aughts and in, in the wake of the credit crisis. And we were facing a bit of a challenge, um, if not an existential crisis, because there were OTC venues like Enron Online and the Intercontinental Exchange's first effort was really effectively an electronic OTC brokerage system, neither of which offered any credit capabilities at the time. So when things came to be, and it really proved out our point that, you know, what, what value of, uh, are these exchange systems if there's not some credit capacity behind it? And it was kind of amidst and around the Enron collapse that, you know, we really, the, the idea started coming together. For me, it was a moment in, in the fall of a one, I was you know, on a boat ride uh, after the end of a long day, a bunch of guys uh, who lived in New Jersey were on the, the ferry across the Hudson and uh, 
the COO of, of Namex at the time, uh, Neil Welkoff, turned to the, the CTO, uh, David Keller, and he said, David, can you put a pick card on the internet and, and have uh, the ability to for clearing firms to approve a trade? And David said, yeah. And, and David was responsible for a lot of great technology innovations at, at NYMEX at the time. And he and his team delivered a system that, that did that in part and that evolved into something that was really useful in putting the task into the hands of uh, the users, the people who were entering the trades and being able to give confidence to parties that, that a trade was done and cleared in a matter of minutes, if not seconds. I think it was on that boat ride that you know what, what came to be Clearport was really born, and that through lots of effort after that, we were able to deliver. And you, you've both spoken to the the importance of having the trading community embrace what you're doing. So you can build it, but it's not the field of dreams. People won't just come. And I know, Dan, I've heard you talk about in the context of Clearport, the role of uh, what I've heard you refer to as the Short Hills Summit after uh, Short Hills, New Jersey, I presume. Uh, what was that event and what happened there? So we the, the system was coming together and this is in in the spring of, of uh, 02 and the system was coming together and we knew we had to get key players to the table. We knew we, we wanted to embrace the OTC brokerage community, which had always really avoided us uh, because they're entirely focused on OTC bilateral trades and, they, and there was somewhat of a competitive environment between us. But because of all the credit issues in the market, it, it, it occurred to us there was an opportunity to engage them So because they were hurting from a lack of, of uh, liquidity in the market because all the counterparties had credit issues with each other. So it was decided to, to gather and invite this group of, of OTC brokers. And Joe, as always, cast a very wide net to reach everybody. Uh, my boss, uh, Bob Levin in research, said, Dan, get the, get the product stacked deck together and we're going to you got to come down to Short Hills on Sunday morning, and we're going to do this presentation. So I, I didn't have high hopes for, you know, I thought I thought there'd be a handful of, of us NYMEX staffers, and, and our chairman, Vinny Viola, and President Bo was there. And I was, I, I couldn't believe the response we got, and that not only were all the brokerage firms represented, but in many cases, the principals of the firms were there. It was clear from that moment that we were onto something, you know, and that really was the start of it, you know. David's team delivered on the system and, and we were up and running, you know, in the following month. And I imagine there are no like soft openings for an exchange or for an operation like this. Like you're either open for business or you're not. And so, Joe, I'm curious, what was the launch of Clearport like? And can you take us back to those early days of being open for business? Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Um, we we had a marketing team down at, uh, so as Dan said, the, the Short Hills meeting happened. Um, it was, we thought, pretty good success. We still had to get final board approval, and the board was still suspicious, which were mostly made up of locals, that we were going to take their business away from them. So that was always a, a chance, but Vinny, thankfully, uh, had enough power at the board at the time to, to push it through. And so, you know, we, we launched, and the, the interesting thing was that ICE decided to launch a competing platform about a week or two before us, as, as competitors normally do. And we kind of sh- you know, shrugged that off and we knew, we knew we had the right product. We knew we were clearing in mass futures, the products as futures versus ICE, which were cleared swapped because they didn't control their own clearinghouse. It was cleared in London. It was a, a little bit of a different situation structural wise. And anyway, so they copied the products we had. We launched after they did. Uh, I remember very, very distinctly, 
we had one of our marketing guys, one of my, my still closest friends, Jerry David, was down at one of the big trading firms. And the system that time was very, very, I would say, uh, basic in its, in its structure in that we had to have the traders approve the trade once they were inputted by the broker, which they all did. And when they clicked the button, it would print out a ticket in our, in our trade management system at the NYMEX. And I remember we were on the, all on the phone at the same time and we said, okay, submit the trades. And we submitted the trade and the paper didn't print out. And so the guy who was up in the, the trade management room said, we thought he was asleep, actually. Uh, he basically, um, uh, we figured that there was no paper in the printer. So Dan had to run from <laughs> like down to the fourth floor and then back up to the 15th floor to get on the phone again to tell everybody to, to push the trade in again. So, we, you know, th- thankfully he survived and didn't, I mean, it was quite a, quite a run up and down the stairs, but um, it's a true story. And, uh, you know, from that point, you know, it was it was really education. I remember spending the year after we launched Clearport, mostly on the road, educating the community, uh, the trading community, the FCMs in, in particular, about how to clear, how to take an OTC contract that was used to be a bilateral contract and turn that into a futures contract. And for a lot of FCMs, with the exception of maybe a couple, they didn't get it. They didn't really want to get it because they were making a lot of money on the benchmark contracts and other markets. But to educate them on how to do that and what was actually going to result of it. I spent three days at a big, uh, one of the big trading firms down in Houston, going through almost every department within the organization, legal, compliance, risk, trading, back office, to explain to them in various sessions for those three days exactly what we were doing. And, you know, uh, thankfully, uh, and for thankfully for the market to the marketplace, most of the firms got it and they, they adopted it and we, you know, they saw the benefits of it. And I think probably one of the biggest, I would say backers of us and even ICE at that time was John Arnold. John was a big natural gas trader. He was just starting out his Centaurus fund. He was really at its infancy. Uh, good kind of anecdotal story. Bo Collins sent me down to Houston to meet him. I had never met him before and had dinner with him one-on-one. And we told him what we were doing and said, listen, we're going to give you the ability to cross margin. And this gets to the point of you know the ability to make your trades more efficient. Cross margin your Henry Hub futures against your OTC cleared contracts, your Henry Hub financial. And he said, I don't think you can do that. And I said, well, we are. And he said, if you do that, I will back you guys. I will be in on this. And sure enough, I, when I got back, I, we showed him how we were going to do that through cross-margining, and he was uh, he was all in. And that obviously was one of the other successes of getting the marketplace uh, to move towards using us was getting big players like John and some of the bigger firms and the brokers all in. But but it, it took a, a long time to get clearing firms. There was one clearing firm that couldn't couldn't clear negative price differentials on that gas basis, which is a way that it trades for a lot of times. Uh, they couldn't get their systems to acknowledge or recognize negative price contracts. So they weren't on board for, for that gas basis anyway for years. And so, you know, it does come at incremental points of, of adoption. I would add to that point, you know, Joe gave the example of a hedge fund trader who got the benefits, but like the on the other side of that, where he was the liquidity provider, there were, um, and we've spoken about Enron's problems. Well, Enron didn't survive all this, but the companies that adopted what we were doing from a clearing perspective, particularly the merchant energy um, electricity producers, you know, they had sound business where they'd hedged their gas purchases and they had hedged their power sales, but they were putting out so much collateral because of the credit crisis. And clearing gave them the ability, the ability to offset some of those risks and reduce their, their trade financing costs dramatically. 
So for companies like Dynagy or Reliance or Calpine, many of which survive in one way, shape or form and are responsible for much of the generating capacity in the country, these companies were literally saved by mechanisms like ours. And the ability, as I said in the clearing uh, earlier on in the context of a clearinghouse, these parties were able to come together for the first time, you know, in a way where their transactions would be executed OTC, but cleared through a traditional futures clearinghouse. So Joe, you're out on the road doing the hard work, winning customers and market participants one meeting at a time. It wasn't that easy. <laughs> I wouldn't have called it winning in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Dan, I've often, you guys have both brought up Enron a number of times. And Dan, I've heard you say many times that crises are often what speed the adoption of new exchanges and clearinghouses and new contracts. And Clearport launched within, I think, a year, probably less of the collapse of Enron. So I, I would love, Dan, for you to dig into a little more. How did that crisis speed the adoption of Clearport? And could you almost like palpably experience it in people's attitudes? Yeah, it's uh, and I, I may have jumped the gun a little bit in my last response, um, and uh, but I'll go back to it. Right there, there were companies that were, and, and this is let's also remember in the early aughts there was significant issues with energy supply, both um, fuel and power, and the market was quite volatile, and, and many market participants had taken on programs to hedge themselves, but were, were suffering from the liquidity risk, but they were all, all of their programs were born into the, the OTC markets. And now all of a sudden, their, their counterparts were drying up. If they had a hedge and they wanted to cover that hedge, they were limited in their ability and who, they, who were they going to go to to cover that? And it, it was indeed a crisis that, that we launched into but we were able to, you know, hold up. Here are the benefits of of clearing in terms of being able to exit or enter, depending on what your risk capabilities were, uh, into positions in a common place, and to do so in a way that you didn't have the concerns that you would if you had done a hedge with an Enron that collapsed or all the other firms that that kind of took the lesson and survived it by adapting in the environment we did. So. You know, the, the concept had been around for a long time. And, and this is, and, and with Clearpoint, we introduced a whole bunch of new products on top of the benchmarks. But, you know, even before that, we had seen a great deal of uh, what are called lookalike stuff. So if Henry Hub, you know, was is one of the benchmark NYMEX contracts. There was almost as much Henry Hub trading going on in the bilateral markets. And we pointed out from a cost perspective that OTC market participants weren't taking into account the true cost of credit. We'd said that for many years, but to no avail. The crisis made it real for everybody and it caused traders to have to justify their costs in terms of uh, how they were financed and how the firm was supporting them and their activities. And we really saw, I mean, it was just an amazing shift in part because of what NYMEX introduced in, in, in the form of Clearport and, and some reforms it made in some rules that kind of conform better to commercial practices in the energy sector. So it, absent those events, I don't know, it could have been a good idea that never had its time. But fortunately, the two, the two worlds came together. Yeah. And I'm just curious, Dan, on the one hand, you have Enron as a large participant in the market, you know, large trader. On the other hand, was the Enron platform doing some of the work that an exchange or a clearinghouse or other market infrastructure would do prior to its collapse? It was, and it was doing it pretty effectively. 
And, you know, theoretically, it, it may have gone on for, for, you know, much longer time than it did, if not for the crisis in the credit that they encountered. I remember talking to traders, you know, across the evolution of Enron Line, where a trader would say, oh, there's no way they're making money because their margins are too narrow. And, oh, I'll never trade that. And it got to a point, you know, six months later, I'm there and the guys like, oh, I'm, I'm making some great trades because of that. I use it all the time now. It became a tool that almost everybody was using and, and they were getting enough liquidity where in many cases, some of their markets were on autopilot. But at the end of the day, it was built on, uh, on a shaky foundation, you know, because it was one single credit that the whole market was going up against. And we, we see what, you know, we saw it happen in the energy markets. A couple of years later, we saw it happen in the financial markets when AIG was in a similar role. So, it, you know, really, it set the stage. And again, a lot of it was timing and providence. But because of our persistence and the things we'd done and, and a lot of hard work and recognizing the opportunity that was at hand, we were able to deliver on it. And Joe, I'd like to ask you about that next big credit crisis, the global financial crisis and the reforms that followed. How did that affect Clearport's role in the financial markets? Yeah, it just gave us opportunities in other product areas. And it really focused, more, I think, more intensely on the on the issue of, of counterparty risk and efficiencies and margining and and who you're trading with. And it really, that was an important, I think, next step in the marketplace, right? Everybody, just like we were talking about earlier, you know, the inefficiencies of, of the markets uh, where, you know, volatility brings higher margins. There's no way to offset your OTC trades against your exchange trades. Um, that was really, you know, the banks were really at a point where they were becoming looked at as, as being suspect from a credit perspective during the, you know, the, the financial crisis in 2008. And so, you know, I think there was even more focus on the use of an exchange and a clearinghouse for risk mitigation, for counterparty risk mitigation. Those were really important points in the marketplace. And we just saw an even more, I would say, shift in the use of the, the, the NYMEX and, and other clearinghouses uh, for not only energy products, but metals and other asset classes that, uh, that might have been traded bilaterally. And it must have been a different experience to have regulators starting to push customers towards you with the move towards putting OTC swaps on exchange and did they get pushed through Clearport as well? Not the financial contracts. So they were, there was the, the, the real, after the, the financial crisis, Dodd-Frank came about and there was more focus on on uh, cleared swaps versus, um, and, and the markets and financial markets, Dan was involved in that in some of it after, after he left the NYMEX, but that was we didn't use Clearport for that. It was, um, you know, the exchange had uh, the NYMEX and at that point CME, after we merged with them, had uh, interest rate markets out there. So there was uh, there was a lot of uh, discussions about how, you know, how cleared swaps can be used on exchange or uh, how would they be, uh, you know, through a swap execution facility. There was a lot of talk around that during the years. We, we looked at it, you know, CME looked at building or buying a swap execution facility, but felt that futures were a better credit or risk mitigation tool than than swaps themselves. So, you know, there was a lot of talk about how things were going to change. And the market did evolve after that, right? So CEFs were, um, were the big talk of the time in 2008, 2009, after Dodd-Frank came about, and, you know, and, st- and, and the clearing of OTC contracts outside of energy or commodities was also a big focus. I mean, we kept saying to the to the regulators, "Hey, we've been doing this for ten years, right? We we know how to do this. There's been this tool in place in the energy markets from the last crisis. You guys should look at this to make sure you're following similar ideals and and, and structure because it's efficient. It works well. It brought the market together and it solved 
a lot of the problems that were in the counterparty uh, trading community in energy and commodities back then. And now you should you know, potentially look at this for uh, for other other financial instruments. We also saw a shift in other markets and commodities and European markets that were traditionally bilateral moving into a cleared environment. So that helped us again build more liquidity, more open interest in other products. We got extremely active in European power and gas. We looked at the time to buy an exchange over in Europe to get entry into the European markets. We listed Asian clear products uh, that were index related out in Singapore and other areas. So yeah, we definitely expanded our footprint because of the focus on counterparty risk and also the mitigation of risk and also the uh, more efficient use of capital. Yeah. Now it seems like we've definitely have moved beyond the textbook version where futures are cleared and forwards and swaps are not. And we have, you know, cleared swaps and cleared forwards and everything else. I'm curious, Joe, looking back, how did the innovation of clearing OTC trading change the futures markets, maybe both in the nature of the participants, how people access them? What was that evolution like? It was both, really. So it it changed. It brought more participants that might not have been able to access these markets because they didn't want to put a NISDA in place or take the time to put a NISDA in place for you know, six, eight, 10 months, how long it takes to get active into a new contract or a new asset class. It brought in funds, hedge funds, definitely different asset classes. I would say even some big institutional clients that didn't, um, you know, maybe only traded big benchmarks. Now we're looking at other asset classes like European power and gas or, or Asian products also. So it, did, it definitely broadened out the community of participants in the marketplace. I think it also it also kind of reinforced the, the role of the broker in the marketplace. Everybody kept writing off the, the existence of, of the interdealer brokers or the OTC brokers, the intermediation of the marketplace, so to speak. Um, and, you know, we kept seeing and saying that wasn't going to happen from what we saw from our markets, which were largely brokered. We didn't see that happening where they were going to they actually became more efficient. They weren't going to go by the wayside. And in fact, the marketplace was looking as, the, as we listed more products, the marketplace was looking to the brokers to give the customers, you know, the pricing signals in those new markets. And so they found, uh, you know, continued life because of the increase in clearing. And even to this day, there's still a very relevant part of the marketplace, including some of the newer markets that we're going to list on ABEX in the next uh, coming months. So, you know, they haven't gone by the wayside and they're still very relevant. And I think that despite the effort to disintermediate them through electronic trading, they are a very, very relevant part of the marketplace. So, you know, I guess what's, you know, what's old is sometimes new again, too. Well, speaking of that, I wanted to ask each of you uh, your thoughts on this final question. And that is, what lessons did you learn from your experience in launching Clearport about what it takes to successfully build and launch new market infrastructure? Many fail. And I think just today, you've rattled off quite a few things that didn't work out. How do you succeed in doing this? And maybe I'll start with you first, Dan. Yeah, the it became pretty clear to me, and it's becoming more and more clear the older I get and the more I understand history as you know I view and review it. You know, when when I was involved in NYMEX and you know my mentors were always pushing us to focus on commercial needs and being focused like, what good is a product if there's not a commercial need for it, and what good is it if you can't get to critical mass in engaging them? The key parts in in any marketplace, you know, the the natural sellers, the natural buyers, and the trading companies who who move everything in between, and that became clear to us. You know, historically we would do that on a product by product basis, but now all of a sudden we recognize the benefits of a clearing 
uh, house extended well beyond the benchmark products. And, you know, it became evident that we were filling a commercial need that, that couldn't, you know, if not being filled, could have been a catastrophe. Being ready when that opportunity presents itself. Uh, there's a lot of legwork that went into it in terms of, you know, evaluating the markets and, you know, knowing when folks said they wanted a new product, you know, how to interpret their needs into uh, a futures contract. And that's, you know, that's something I've done throughout my career. It's, it's You could take an 80-page bilateral agreement and you boil it down into a five-page futures contract. And it's a lot of art and a lot of science, but it can't be done unless you're getting input from a broad community. And that's the last piece. And, you know, we if you think of the history of NYMEX, as I have and known who the players were, and um, uh, an earlier interview that you had with uh, Michael Marks, he spoke of uh, the early days where the FCMs and the, and the exchange staff were out beating the pavement, getting folks to put in orders into a marketplace. Um, and this is back in the days of the pit. The Commodity Futures Modernization Act made our job a little bit easier and that OTC trades were permitted in the form of, of blocks and EFPs and, and even encouraged. Back then, everything had to go through the pit, but they did it. On the back of a real commercial need, they went out there and hit the payment and they built that community that offers enough depth and diversity where all the benefits come about because th- that community is participating, bringing its bids and offers and trades into the market and, and, and sharing that information with each other, which otherwise outside of an exchange environment goes unheard. And so we very much did in Clearpro what, what, what NYMEX did when you know, it converted from potato energy into hydrocarbon energy. And historic, you know, looking back on it, it's, it's those three elements, I think, that are most important. And seizing on them is, is what leads to success. You know, it's certainly in the case of NYMEX and its moving energy and, and Clearport into, you know, addressing how, how does one effectively get a bigger part of the market's portfolio into a sound environment. Thanks, Dan. Maybe now I'll turn to you, Joe. Can you uh, let us know what lessons did you take away from your Clearport experience? You know, it's it really it even goes before that, and you know, I've been in, in commodities for a long time, and I think the one thing there's, there's two points, but the one thing that does keep coming around is relationships, and the value of relationships is as equally, or if not more, valuable than the value of a market. It's um, it really you know, and and I think anyone will attest that our markets are as large as they are, are really small, and the relationships that you have with traders or trading firms and the the impact or the how you nurture those relationships is really critically important over the years. And I think that that helps us as we're launching a new exchange here. The other thing that I always keep reminding myself is that liquidity is relative. We Sometimes we get to, not we here, but we got caught up in the years past of, uh, especially after our merger uh, in 2007, that you know pools of liquidity had to be massive. We had to be trading a million contracts a day, but yet in the smaller pools of liquidity that we had built, around some of the smaller contracts like NGLs, like LPGs, like you know some of the other refined contracts. Maybe they had only 25 players in it, but satisfying the, the, the risk and the pricing components of that small pool of liquidity led to other contracts that we were able to launch, led to other volume and, and open interest, led to better risk management tools. So I think that liquidity is relative. And I think if, if you do satisfy a portion of the marketplace that may seem relatively small, it will eventually help build other markets that you have on your exchange. So, you know, sometimes you get caught up in that it's got to be a benchmark that's trading a million contracts a day. I think if we had 10 contracts that traded 100,000 contracts a day, I think we'd be equally as happy as one that's trading a million. So 
it's really an interesting part of the marketplace. And it all goes back to relationships. And I think that's what will differentiate IBEX from the others is how we uh, approach the marketplace and how we how we develop those relationships and use them for, for better tools for, for trading and risk management. Thanks again to Dan McElduff and Joe Rea of IBEX Exchange and Clearinghouse. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week with our guest Adi Imshirovich, Director at Surrey Clean Energy, former global head of oil trading at Gazprom Marketing and Trading, and author of Trading and Price Discovery for Crude Oil, and editor of the book Brent Crude Oil, Genesis and Development of the World's Most Important Oil Benchmark. We'll be discussing the history and speculating on the future of the Brent Crude Oil market. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability. ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, ABEX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week. 